As a dynamic global organization, City is fueled by talented individuals with diverse perspectives. Explore front-end to back-end software engineers, application developers, scrum masters, product owners, and more at jobs.city.com slash tech. At City, they're more than just a bank. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my partner in crime, editor of our blog and sender of our newsletter, Ryan Thor Donovan. Ryan, what's happening? Oh, you know, got the Friday vibes. Got those Friday vibes. Today, we are going to have on the program Anand Das, who is the CTO and co-founder of Bitto, which is a productivity tool for developers, tries to accelerate software development using AI models like the ones that come from OpenAI and Anthropic. He has been a CTO at other places like IOTA, which was acquired for $165 million in 2021 and co-founded and served as CTO of Pubmatic, which went public in 2020. Anand has also held various engineering roles at Panta Systems, a high-performing computer startup led by the CTO Veritas, and worked at Veritas and Symantec, or in some capacity on storage and backup products, got seven patents to his name. Ooh. So quite a diverse background in the world of software technology and even hardware, it sounds like. So yeah, we're excited to chat. We love to talk about developer productivity. We can't help, obviously, but talk about what's happening in the world of Gen AI and tools like mm-hmm. OpenAI and Anthropic are bringing to the world. So without further ado, Anand, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I just gave folks a bit of an overview there, but maybe tell us a little bit about, yeah, like given your, your sort of polyglot background, working in a lot of different areas, what brought you to your current role and the focus on productivity tools for developers? Yeah. So I've been developer all through my life and, you know, I've been at stages when, you know, I was developing code straight out of college, right? Where somebody used to give me requirements and then later on managing teams, which are, you know, developing a bunch of tools, uh, which work together to deliver a solution to the customers. But, you know, as you kind of start managing team, you kind of figure out like, you know, when you are a software developer, what are the things you are missing? And as you start managing, you know, where are the loopholes? And as new people come in, old people go. Uh, and do things that they want to, there's a lot of amount of leak in information. So how do you kind of help the developer team uh, to be on the same page and, you know, develop code, uh, which is according to the specifications of your organization and deliver value to your customers. So that is where, you know, this was like a core problem that, you know, I've been dealing with for like last 20 odd years and wanted to solve it. That is where, you know, the idea of Bito started. Again, we didn't start using Gen AI on day one. You know, it was more like kind of the stack overflow concept, you know, in a way wherein, you know, there's a lot of amount of tribal knowledge. Can we gather that tribal knowledge and put it all together, but accessible in the flow, right? When developers are coding in their IDE or maybe Vim and so on, you have to kind of switch between a browser and your development environment, which basically sucks away a lot of amount of like energy as well as, you know, your thought process when you're actually coding. So we wanted the information to be available right where you are when you're coding. That is where, you know, the idea all started. And, you know, we started this in like 2021, like thinking and building tools around it. But then we, you know, got users talking about, you know, I don't want to provide information. I don't have time to, you know, explain to people all the things that they want. Uh, If there is a bug or if there is a major issue, you know, I might get involved and so on can you automatically generate this, right? And, uh, you know, OpenAI and stuff, they started launching GPT 3.5, end of 2021, I'd say. But, you know, nothing was available early, you know, except for GPT 2. 
that wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. And uh, once GPT 3.5 came out, or GPT 3, I'd say, then we figured out that, you know, hey, we can use AI for this. And that is where all the things started with Gen AI. It's so amazing to me. You know, most people were not really following along, right? I mean, you could play yeah. with GPT-1, you could play with GPT-2. You could, and I remember there were little things. Oh, it writes good short stories. Oh, it like, you know, is decent at imitating poems. Oh, it's fun for doing Dungeons and Dragons. But, you know, it was kind of thought of as a joke. And then GPT-3 was one where people started getting it to, you know, mock up websites and do a little bit of this and that. But there was some sort of step function it hit at 3.5 and then again at 4, you know, that obviously took it in a yeah. different direction. But cool to hear that you were paying attention to that early. And I guess that's how you got on here. So yeah, let's discuss this because we have Overflow AI coming out. We have a roadmap. And you know, I think a lot of folks are basically pushing the same general idea, which is like, let's supercharge enterprise search, whether that's for your code base or your documentation. You know, mm. Everything is going to be ingested by the, the model. Like it's going to train on it, or you know, you're going to have some embeddings that live in a vector database. And then when you ask a question of, that you need within your organization, why am I getting this bug? Instead of having to tap you know, this me on the shoulder you know, or look at an FAQ that's out of date, you're just going to you know, get an answer from the chat bot. So tell us a little bit about how you do that and how you think it's different. You know, like, Do you have a specific approach? Do you think it differentiates you? Like For Stack Overflow, the differentiation is crowdsourcing and voting, mm-hmm. you know, which we've been doing for a while. And that's how you make sure the information is accurate, relevant, up-to-date, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say general principles stay the same, right? Like, you know, anybody who's basically building it would typically implement, you know, retrieval augmented generation, right? Which is like, you know, if you're basically answering questions on code, documents or whatever, you'll take, you know, the input set, preferably break it down into chunks. You'll index it using either embedding or, you know, a combinational uh, thing. Like, you know, you'll have embedding for some and then you might overlay it with like a semantic search index plus other indexes. Because when somebody is basically asking a question, it can boil down into explain me something in the code. Or it can be like, can I make changes for adding this column to a database? Can you tell me all the places I need to make changes to? Or somebody might say, tell me all the files which are there in my current repository, right? And all these three things break down into multiple different uh, objectives, right? You know, give me a directory listing, which doesn't need an AI. You know, give me where all changes are required, which actually requires some amount of reasoning, which is like find the symbol, like which is a table name, then figure out, you know, you want to add a column. So, you know, what should I do there? You know, is MySQL or something else? And then figure out where all this table is used in code, right? And then figure out which lines of code have it and then figure out the changes required for it, right? Versus, you know, somebody basically saying, you know, explain me something, which is like, figure out the symbol, figure out the file, which actually has the definition, go through those lines and explain it. So again, you know, what is different is, you know, we are basically trying to build an index on your existing code and answer questions for it. We are not trying to, you know, kind of search the web or, you know, use generic information. We can use generic information to generate code that you're asking for, but primarily focused on your code base and giving the information from your code base. Uh, the other fact that you mentioned, like on Stack Overflow, which is like, you know, you're crowdsourcing data and you're getting data from users, that is very important because generative AI can actually hallucinate. And you have to do a bunch of things to make sure that it doesn't hallucinate. The other thing is, how do you know whether the code that you're providing is going to run or not? Or, you know, you created something off the top of your mind. Like, for example, I want to access this API and the API doesn't exist. You don't want like OpenAI to suddenly give you or, you know, any model that you're using suddenly give you an API which doesn't exist. And you are like, okay, I can use this. When you start running, it's like, 
there's no definition for it right so putting right. guardrails around it and stuff so those are the differences uh, you know that are there and obviously you know at some point in time everybody will catch up because everybody who's providing a solution will need things like that and right. then you know it's like how better you get at it and how better you use the context window that llms have uh, to give more of a complete result rather than an incomplete one. The, the context window went from 8K to 32 to 100K. So we got a lot more context yeah. window as of uh, the, the announcement this week. Yeah, I mean, speaking of context window, code bases today are just sprawling across like multiple repos, multiple services, right? They're, they're pretty huge. Is there a sort of hard limit on the sort of context that an AI can understand in sort of understanding searching a code base, even with, retrieval augmented generation. Yeah. So there is a limit, right? So if you kind of look at uh, OpenAI, you know, GPT-4 Turbo now, it's supposed to give you 128K context window, which is great. Uh, Anthropic already gives you 100K. And the other algorithms which are out there, you know, some of them, like most of them have reached the 32K limit. But, you know, at the same point in time, what these context windows do is the amount of context that you can give is limited to this. Right. So you have to be very careful about what you fill into that context to get the answer. Okay. Sometimes you are able to fit in everything that you need. So your answer is complete. But as you said, you know, you might have larger code bases or in bigger organizations, you might have multiple repositories for microservices and you might be building something which uses multiple microservices. So you need, like, you know, if you're generating a piece of code, you need access to that piece of information so that you generate proper code that somebody can use. Right. Doesn't have to like then take the code and tinker around like and change 90% of it to make it work. Now to do that, mm. if you just limit the context window even to 128K and if the code base is huge and the relative context is huge, then the answer that you're going to get is going to be incomplete. Now there are multiple ways to solve it, which is like, okay, if the context is more than the context window, let me actually fire more than one request to actually generate the answer, mm. which, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I'll basically form a chain of prompts and then, you know, keep on running them on different contexts and then gather the results and combine them together. Now that works well with languages or like, you know, text data. Now you cannot basically say, let me take this piece of code or take me to, you know, this piece of code, which are like, you know, different based on different contexts and then say, let's jam them together. What if it doesn't fit into the context window? So you have to come up with techniques which basically say that, okay, I'm going to provide solution continuously, one thing at a time. And then, mm-hmm. you know, based on what I've generated and what next piece of information that I have, let me update the existing code and then finally get the code that works and then provide it to the user, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are certain use cases that you won't be able to solve today completely uh, without mm-hmm. taking, you know, a totally different and like, you know, programmatic approach, which is like, yeah, I want to upgrade from like, you know, Java version X to Java version Y across my repository, mm-hmm. right? That is something that, you know, it's not that you cannot do it, but, you know, the amount of effort required to do that is huge. It's not something which is like, okay, I'll just use LLM, give a prompt, give my, you know, code, you know, attach a rag and I'll get something that will be working right. up and running quickly, right? So right. there is a yeah. limit. Yeah. yeah. That's why so many people are still going to be putting off their Java upgrades. <laughs> yeah, I'd like for you to completely refactor this code base in a different language as a tall order, but it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, it, it will come. I mean, it's like you can do it for uh, smaller uh, size programs or, you know, if you can fit everything into the context window, you can do it for a piece of code. 
But the thing is, when it goes beyond a context window, and I think context windows will keep on like you know yeah. changing. You know, they'll keep on increasing. Yeah, yeah. So let's get down into the nitty gritty. What are some of the fun things you've been finding with Rag, like tricks that make it work better, or things where you're like, if you do this, it really screws it up. Like, what have you been mm-hmm. working on? What's the bleeding edge of you know how to get the best out of your Rag <laughs> approach? So there are a couple of things, right? And there are different areas. Like, you know, one is performance. Obviously, when somebody is asking a question, they expect the answers to be instantaneously available, right? With RAG, you know, it's there, but it's not quite there because if your code base is huge, you know, and not everybody is using Pinecone, Pinecone is costly, right? So if you're basically, you know, using a big code base and, you know, you're running a vector database, then it does take some time to get the context. And after getting the context, the other thing is LLMs. You know, you'll also figure out when you're running LLMs, like, you know, if you give a larger context, they take a bit larger time than, you know, something with smaller context. So managing performance is important. Now, when it comes to creating a rag, the thing is, how do you actually segregate data that you index, right? So when I say creating chunks, or, you know, you have a big file, which you're kind of dividing into multiple pieces and indexing them, you know, what content do they have? Like if I basically just take the approach of breaking down a code file as I break a text file down, then RAG will be there. It will give you the context, but, you know, your answers might be wrong because when you're searching for a particular function and you're chunking, when you're chunking, you're not looking at function boundaries. So you might get the function definition start. The whole function is not there. (laughs) That is part of your context. The remaining part is missing. And then you try to get an answer and you get a wrong answer, right? Do you have like a approach to attribution? Like I know for Stack Overflow, you know, one of the things we're looking at is like, okay, we're going to get you an answer that, you know, is generated through a RAG kind of process, but, it, you know, it's only going to look at Stack Overflow questions with an accepted answer. And then when it's done, it's going to show you the sources and, you know, the recent upgrade to ChatGPT, where now you can use Bing, it gives me an answer and it, and it cites, you know, the websites that it got it from. And so I can go check that. Do you have that within your system, but for, you know, like the company's code base? Yes, yes. So whenever any answer is provided, like, you know, where do you want to make changes and so on, wherever required based on the question, we basically provide the links to the file from where, you know, the code was picked up or the information mm-hmm. was used uh, to provide this output. Yeah, we do. As a dynamic global organization, City is fueled by talented individuals with diverse perspectives. Explore front-end to back-end software engineers, application developers, scrum masters, product owners, and more at jobs.city.com slash tech. At City, they're more than just a bank. I like that, you know, early on your website, you talk about uh, security is the priority. Everybody with a enterprise code base is, is very much worried about their security. How do you provide that while also indexing the entire code base (laughs) <laughs> and also sending those to, you know, AI APIs. So there are two pieces to security. One is like, you know, we being a tool which provides help to the developers, we use LLMs and we don't own LLMs, right? Like we use LLMs mm-hmm. from OpenAI or Anthropic or for that matter, you know, mm-hmm. OpenAI and Azure, right? And Amazon Bedrock and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And even Google. So we've started using Google models also. Uh, so one is for enterprises, you know, you can basically deploy these models in a VPC, right, which is private to them. And uh, we can basically use the API URLs from there so that, you know, they can be assured that, you know, it might be going to an LLM model, but it's not going to like a third party. It's in my VPC. So that's, you know, one level of security. The second level of security is the data that is transient in between, right? So even if you do RAG, 
whenever you're basically answering the question, based on the question, you're identifying the relevant context using RAG. And then you're passing that context along with the question to the LLM, which actually is going to pass through us. Okay. And then there's the portion, which is RAG, which is the index. Where do you maintain it? So for consumers today, we say that we'll index whatever is there opened, you know, as a project in your IDE. And we maintain that index on user's machine itself. And we use a in-memory vector DB that we have built so that the data stays out there. And it does go to an LLM. When an individual user is using not an enterprise account, and we are working with, you know, LLMs like OpenAI and Tropic or, you know, for that matter, OpenAI on Azure and Amazon Bedrock uh, models, we basically have an agreement in place, which is like, you know, anything coming through our APIs, you're not going to track, you're not going to use for learning or anything. And then all the transaction actually happens. We don't log anything except for whether results were liked by the user or not, right? And uh, the telemetry data of like, you know, how many tokens were used and so on for, you know, cost management and stuff like that. So all the data is on the user's machine, right? That's the primary goal. We have made sure that there is no logging. Like, you know, hey, how do I figure out whether things are working or not? It's like, if the things are not working, user has an issue, let them share data. We are not going to capture their data, which is flowing to the platform or the system. And, you know, all of the things are secure. That the normal stuff that you do, encryption keys and stuff like that. Yeah. So that is how we provide security. Cool. And uh, the other thing is for enterprises, the indexes, you know, will be maintained. Like the RAG can be maintained within their own data centers if they want. Today, we support like, you know, their clouds rather than on-premise systems because it's easier to manage and monitor. Makes sense. So another thing that I'm curious about is how you would measure the impact on developer productivity because that's something we talk about a lot. Um, Ryan just did a great episode recently about Dora metrics and you know to what degree we can trust those. So have you been able to do any case studies with folks um, you know, to sort of put hard numbers around the kinds of improvements you can make with this strategy? Yeah. So we, as I said, right, we don't collect much data which is flowing through our system, right? To basically figure out, okay, what kind of questions people asked, what the answers they got, and then try to verify later on, you know, whether those were right or wrong. So we depend upon user feedback, which is a thumbs up, thumbs down that we have in our UI. Plus, you know, we survey the users on a regular basis, like, you know, what do they feel good? What do they feel bad about? And, you know, based on the survey and the thumbs up, thumbs down data, what we have gathered from our users is, you know, it has at least improved their productivity by 30%, right? And when we say 30%, in which areas? So one is, you know, for people who are kind of working remote and, you know, their teams are kind of across different countries, uh, language forms a barrier, but now that barrier is kind of removed because of AI, Mm -hmm. right? The other thing is, uh, you know, for people who are kind of coming into the project or, you know, trying to solve bugs and don't really know a particular language that is being used, like, you know, somebody wrote a script in Python and the guy doesn't know Python, they can actually understand what that script does and logically figure out there is an issue and then have AI actually write code. So there was one guy who actually is a JS programmer, like, you know, Node.js programmer. And he's like, you know, I could actually fix issues in a Python code, which I never did before. And (laughs) it just took me five minutes, right? right? So those kind of productivity gains are there. The other thing that we have seen people do is move repetitive tasks to AI. Right. So for example, hey, you need to basically create doc strings. Right. And I'm really bad at that. So let me actually just have AI create doc strings for my code. Right. Or uh, basically create commit messages 
there's one guy who basically created release messages and tried to compare like Jira with the code and then come up with like, is the issue fixed, right? Like from the product manager perspective, you know, it's a big deal because they don't know. They have to depend upon the developers, but now, you know, they can have AI to kind of check are the code changes of the div. Does it look like what I asked in the Jira ticket? So, you know, 30% productivity gain is what we have seen. You know, some people talk about like 40 to 50. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. A friend of mine talks about using it, especially for things like creating type definitions in TypeScript, having like a big yeah. JSON blob and just having it just take care of it instead of spending a bunch of time writing out this big, yeah. boring type definition. Yeah. yeah. YAML files, Terraform files, you know, DevOps guys, yeah. you know, love that. And, you know, like LLM models are really good because, you know, they have the knowledge of it. So, you know, you give the requirements and they can immediately generate those files. So now they're kind of like, I don't have to sit down and type and, you know, look at like syntax issues. Yeah. Right. Can an LLM uh, figure out if a uh, YAML file has the right spacing on it? <laughs> that's, <the big> <laughs> that's ultimately unknowable. Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a problem. You know, there are also other challenges, right? Like, you know, I'll give a very simple example. If you just give a piece of like code, uh, which is big enough, and then ask LLM to rewrite. And if it has repetitive code, right? Most of the times LLM will basically show you how to change the first portion of the code. And then later on, it will basically say slash slash to do, you know, for other functions, you know, follow the same thing. And I will say, okay, fine. But I want the whole thing rewritten. And you, you might give the same thing again. Then it might give you the top two functions and then say to do <laughs> everything else rewritten, right? So sometimes it just doesn't understand the human needs, right? And you have to put like additional guardrails and, you know, additional prompting to actually make it do sometimes some things which are very simple to understand from a human perspective, yeah. So I'd be curious to know, do you think there's going to be a healthy relationship between the big model providers, you know, who have an API that you access and the startups like yourself, how do you balance, you know, the cost of accessing that API against what you can charge your customers? And how do you balance the service you provide with maybe competing services that big tech giants who create foundation models will also want to offer? So the thing is, startup, the only advantage you have is you're fast and you're continuously <laughs> working. Right. Mm -hmm. And the big companies have an advantage of like, you know, massive workforce. Right. They also have uh, advantage of like having existing tools being used. So for them, it's just an upsell. Right. They can obviously give stuff for free, which we cannot. So those kind of challenges are there. But I think at the end, it comes down to value that you bring to the table, ease of use. Right. How quickly I can get started on this. And do I need to basically make sure that, you know, I have to be on a particular platform or, you know, I have like various different things I use and can you basically connect with all of this without giving me a headache, mm -hmm. right? So anybody who kind of does that, you know, will see a larger uh, share of wallet when it comes to the ecosystem. So obviously there will be multiple players and having multiple players is good because it keeps you on your toes. Otherwise, you know, you become stagnant, right? Like you're not going to evolve or like innovate. So that is, you know, good part of having competition. But the other thing is you have to always bring value to the table and the users are going to tell you whether you're bringing value to the table or not. So, you know, it's continuous improvement, I'll say. So hopefully that answers the question. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. the thing is, there's no no easy thing. Like, you know, I have this feature which makes me different because, you know, the other guys will have it in like, you know, six months to a year, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a race. So it's the 
overall value that you bring to the table? And then what do you give along with it? So now, you know, when you're talking about coding assistant, you know, people think about it as a simple tool, which is in your IDE, right? Now, you know, there are a lot of organizations which basically have developers using the IDE, but there are some checks that they do in their CI CD pipeline. Can LLM or your tool actually help them when they are in their CI CD process? Because, you know, there you do a catch all. If somebody is not using the IDE that is supported by an AI assistant, what do you do? You know, the DevOps guy is going to use VI, you know, other tools that they want to, Emacs, and, you know, there's no plugin out there. So they will do whatever they want to do. So you want to do a catch-all. Can you apply the same rules out there, right? Can you basically take those rules that you apply in CI, CD, and then percolate them down to the developers, wherein developers don't have to do anything. It's being done automatically, right? Can I have like agents generate your test scripts the moment you save the file? So those are kind of things that will evolve over a period of time. And those will differentiate, you know, how you're doing the value add and differentiate you. Yeah. That's just you brought it up. I wanted to ask about agents. Um, I keep hearing that they are the future of AI, that mm-hmm. you'll have, you know, a team of testers or linters or whatever working beside you on your code. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll be getting into that area, providing some sort of agents that are, you know, helping folks understand the code as as they're working? Yes, yes. We've already, like, you know, I wouldn't say we'll get into that area (laughs) based on, you know, people that we are working with and the needs that they have. We have already dived into it. But, you know, what people call agents, you know, can differ, right? So, for example, if you're kind of looking at agents or tools in terms of like Llama Index and, you know, LangChain, you know, it's like, you know, I have an LLM prompt and, you know, I kind of run it as a chain. Or some people have, you know, I'll give a natural language question. You have multiple agents. It will figure out based on the question which agents to run, give the right inputs, get the output, and you know combine it and then deliver the results. But you know those kind of things sometimes may not work for something which is very specific or like you know can work, but to make it work, you know you'll need something more. So a very simple example is if you want to write a unit test case for a piece of code using agents, now you might have a developer agent which basically generates the unit test case, and you might have a critic agent which basically criticizes the test case that is generated. And then the critic agent, once it criticizes, you know, the developer again takes back the job and like, you know, modifies the code based on what the critic said. How many times are you going to run this process? There has to be a stop to it, right? And when do you stop? When the critic says that, you know, everything is good. And how does the critic know whether it is good or not? So, do you basically then say that, okay, I need a statistical code analysis tool which looks at code coverage and the quality, right? So which is like, you know, outside the gen AI realm. So you'll have a mixture of, you know, non-AI tools plus AI together, you know, complementing each other to get you the right results. Now to do that, you know, if I basically just run an agent, you don't want to also be in a state wherein, you know, I've given this task and it's endlessly going between the developer and the critic, right? And I'm not seeing any results for 10 hours. So you have to put a stop to that also. So can you do it today, like, you know, end to end and have it running in an enterprise? The answer is no. Uh, can you make it happen though, with all the other tools and so on, with right tooling and prompt engineering guidelines and so on? Yes, but the time required to build that is a bit different from, you know, just making a call to LLM and then making that process repeatable, right? Without any hallucinations or, you know, change in stuff that requires another level of tooling and instrumentation. 
right? So those things have to happen. So I'd say, yeah, agents are there. It's a good concept. And right now they are in, like, you know, I'll say a stage wherein you can do POC and pilot. To take it to the enterprise level, we have to do a lot more work uh, to mm-hmm. get there, right? And right. it will happen over a period of time. Yeah, we had this conversation with somebody just the other day, which is like, will these systems start to come up with their own you know, accuracy models, as you pointed out, will that be a separate system? You know, their own way of evaluating, hey, I'm in this actor critic mode or I'm in this, uh, you know, chain of thought reasoning. How do I know, you know, when to stop? Like, you know, because those GPUs cycles are expensive for inference, right? Like a human being is going to stop because they have to feed their kids or they've, they're going to go on vacation. They're going to get to where they say, I, you know, I feel good about it. I've worked hard enough on it. I'm done. The AI will never say that, right? Like you have to say, when is it time for you to stop doing this? And maybe there's even a problem of overfitting, right? Like we don't know. If yeah. you, endlessly ask it to revise and improve its answer, you might end up going backwards at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are simple things which actually make it tough also, right? Like if you if you just ask for it, like, you know, hey, give me, you know, performance improvement changes and, you know, on this code and then rewrite this code with those changes. Right. Then you provide the same code and ask for like performance changes. It will give you another set of things. Now, if you say, give me the whole list, it will give you a whole list, but after you make those changes, it will again give you a list. So it, it, it itself doesn't know when to stop. So you have right. to give guidelines like, okay, what is it that I'm expecting and what level is okay for me? Right. And then you have to use the right model, which understands that. Because if you use GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, you'll have different results. And if you use Anthropic, you know, uh, so when we say multi-model, so this problem expands when you go there. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. It's like, I want you to do this for six hours, and then if you get an improvement in memory or speed or you know a few you know pass the test, that's an improvement. Keep that you know, and if you do it again and you don't see any major improvements over three percent, stop. Right, like when yeah. you see diminishing returns, like that's when you need to stop. And you'll need to use a mix of like Gen AI and some real world tools, right? So, for example, when you have a code interpreter, right, you have a code interpreter which does the job of interpretation. But now once the code is there, whether it works or not, and if there are any issues, you'll only figure out after running it. So you have like, you know, an agent which runs real world tools, which, you know, compiles the code, runs it, figures out the issues, provides it as a feedback, then you kind of go and change it. So it will be a combination. It won't only be completely Gen AI, right? Mm -hmm. At least for some time before, you know, Gen AI is able to do a bunch of more stuff. Yeah. Uh That's when we're all uh, making art and planting seeds. all right everybody it is that time of the show let's shout out someone who came on stack overflow and helped to spread a little knowledge a lifeboat badge awarded to jan cardis november 1st came on and found a question that had a negative score of three or less gave it a great answer that answer now has a score of 20 or more the question is in go how to retrieve a string from between two characters or other strings jan has an answer for you and has helped over thirty-three thousand people so we appreciate it jan as always, I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on X at Ben Popper. You can email us with questions or suggestions for the podcast, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you hear, then leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I'm the editor of the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me on X, you could find me at Arthur Donovan. Hi, I'm Anand. I'm on Twitter at uh, Adirate Anandas, and I am co-founder and CTO at Bito. And check out what we do at Bito.ai. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>